from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey, Jung. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 20th. Today, the Vatican prepares for a summit on sexual abuse. How small donors could shape the 2020 field, and a campaign worker finds his voice. On Thursday at the Vatican, an unprecedented summit is about to begin. Senior bishops from all over the world are gathering to discuss sexual abuse within the church. Okay, what is the objective? It's a good question. Pope Francis called for this summit, but he's also tried to keep expectations low. I'm Chico Harlan. I am the Rome Bureau Chief, so I cover Southern Europe. Chico, in theory, covers a lot of different things. About migration, about politics of Europe. But recently... This month, I don't think I've written about anything other than the church and the scandal that has kind of been a tsunami wave crashing into it or crashing over it. The summit is coming in a time when the church has been consumed, once again, with sexual abuse scandals. This has kind of been the 2.0 version of the crisis that came out and was kind of immortalized with the Boston Globe coverage, but that was 2002. This is a completely different generation and, in a way, a different version of the original problem. In the last year, there have been a number of stories about sexual abuse that have received international attention. These incidents have taken place at Catholic churches and schools all over the world, from India to the Pope's home country of Argentina. The way to start is probably with an American-centric point of view, which is talking about Theodore McCarrick. McCarrick was a cardinal and former Washington archbishop. And this past weekend, he was officially stripped of his priesthood for allegedly abusing seminarians and at least one underage boy. And what basically happened was a never-seen-before downfall. And it wasn't just McCarrick himself who lost his place, but it ended up being the starting point for a discussion within the church about similar scandals happening in other parts of the world, and not just priests that were abusing, but bishops, sometimes even cardinals. And when it was priests that were abusing, the story was no longer, oh, the priest did a bad thing, this is a bad apple. The story was, who's the person above him that allowed it to happen? This summit that is starting on Thursday, what is the objective? I think if you ask somebody in the church, you would probably get an answer that would be hard to decipher, which probably means that the people in this church will finish this four-day event and say that, okay, there's been prayer about this, there's been a renewed commitment or a renewed awareness about the severity of the problem. The bishops will go back to their home countries and be committed to carrying out scrutiny of their priests or holding alleged predators accountable, holding the line on the church's zero tolerance policy. But I think that trying to evaluate the outcome of this summit on Sunday when it's over will be a mistake because Nothing is going to come out of this other than than words, other than talk. There was maybe a, a hope a couple months ago that the church would actually create new laws, change things that are on the books that actually would amount to, I guess you could say, substantive or easy to show reform. It's pretty clear that that is not the goal of this. It is a much more contemplative kind of meeting. 
Well, I think that's such an interesting point because, as you say, what they're talking about is stuff like a renewed commitment to a zero-tolerance policy and stuff that it would seem should have been in existence for many years now because people have known about these problems for many years. So why isn't there a push from within the church to actually create new laws and create new systems to to stop these kinds of abuses from happening and hold people accountable? I guess let's try to think this through and I'll try to channel my best inner church advocate. Mm -hmm. The church is global. And I think Americans can sometimes view it through the lens of, okay, how should church officials act in a country where law enforcement is reliable, where the government is on balance, a reliable partner when it comes to investigating abuse. And indeed in the church, in the United States, dioceses are supposed to hear allegations of abuse and then report them to authorities. And, uh, and when that happens, the danger to children is much reduced. In other parts of the world, you couldn't necessarily have that set up. Let's just say you're talking about a country where the government is not reliable or where homosexuality even is a crime or where the church and the government don't get along or China, for instance, where there's always this tenuous relationship. You might not want a bishop or uh, another Catholic church authority to be dealing with the government. So the church has been very reluctant to put on the books anything that would require a bishop, for instance, to report to law enforcement authorities immediately an accusation. So that means that the church is still trying to mostly deal with this in-house, which is really hard because the church doesn't have the capabilities of law enforcement, doesn't have the know-how. And it always seems to still have this institutional reaction to keep things quiet and to protect the institution. These are men of the institution. And of course, they're men. Like you couldn't build a better place to protect abuse. And the church built this place for millennia. And now it's trying to, to kind of unconstruct some elements of it. So we could, I guess, say, 15 years, yeah, they've had time to undo this, but the church is always in this long game. And in church time, they truly are just beginning. It seems like Pope Francis in particular is in a tenuous position on this because obviously he's a very popular pope in many ways, continues to be. And he has been somewhat forthright about issues of abuse that have gone on in the church. You know, um, recently there was discussion about nuns who had been abused, and he spoke openly about that, which, which I think surprised some people. La donna è di seconda classe. And so in some ways he, like, appears to be this somewhat transparent figure. But then at the same time, there has been all this reporting, including reporting that you've done, about abuses that have happened in the church that Pope Francis was aware of and that he didn't do anything about. And so I'm wondering, like, how much credibility does he have going into this? Uh, less than he did a year ago. Certainly less than he did when he was first named Pope. He has had a series of stops and starts on abuse. And I think in 2018, most church watchers would generally say he was moving in the right direction. His year began kind of calamitously when he was defending this figure in Chile who was already a very widely known or alleged abuser. And he had to backtrack on that. But through the course of the year, he met several times with victims from Chile. And he then reversed course really quite dramatically. He admitted that he had made a mistake 
And ultimately, he rounded up all the bishops of Chile, and they, <laughs> they came to Rome. He browbeat them for a few days. And by the time it was over, they had handed him all their letters of resignation. Now, some are still on the job, but basically he's going through and upending the entire leadership of that country, which has had, I think it's fair to say, systemic abuse. So that's a remarkable about face for the Pope. And he's also been using language more and more that is noticeable, calling sex abuse a crime. Well, no, no kidding, but he repeatedly calls it a crime, calling it systemic and not just the actions of a few bad actors. That's also important. Those aren't things that previous popes, that's not the kind of language that that they'd been using. No, this is all new. I would say within the scope of the Catholic Church and in the language the pontiffs use, this is revolutionary. So he is making progress, but, but it has been very much verbal progress. The thing that drives abuse victims, advocates crazy is that the church really hasn't changed its own laws. It has not more emphasized zero tolerance across the books across the diocese of the world, which is if there's a credible allegation of abuse, the priest is out, the priest is suspended from ministry pending investigation. That still doesn't happen in most parts of the world. And people are just scratching their heads about why. So the Pope is a very effective messenger, but as a manager, he hasn't been able to to orchestrate what is admittedly a monumental task, which is changing this huge religion slash bureaucracy and getting it to move in a different direction. As the sexual abuse crisis has gotten more and more attention over the years, I feel like at least I've seen a lot more talk about, you know, well, maybe we should be rethinking these central tenets of how church leadership is supposed to live. Like maybe we should be rethinking celibacy. Maybe we should be rethinking the way that priesthood works, the way that that's only accessible to men and not women. You know, some of these like central questions. Is any of that going to be coming up at the summit, or is that like completely a non-starter? I'll start by answering it this way. Almost every time I write a story about abuse, I get emails along those lines. I don't know if they're from Catholics, non-Catholics, it really doesn't matter, but it's people saying, look, if the, if the church just made these steps, eliminated the requirement for celibacy, this problem would be drastically reduced. There are a lot of people that agree with that sentiment and who feel that the requirement for celibacy is itself something that has sort of bred problems into the priesthood and even just a lack of healthy sexual development. There are people on the other side who argue vociferously against that. And the church is not even remotely close to contending with that question. I mean, that seems years away, generations away, centuries away, I don't know. So to summarize, no, it is not remotely on the agenda for these upcoming four days. Chico Harlan is the Rome Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. called up all these longtime Democratic, wealthy, millionaire donors being like, hey, who are you giving money to? Who are you hearing from? They're like, I don't really know yet. (laughs) There are so many people out there, like two dozen people, and I don't even know all of them, kind of waiting to see who gets a lot of this small dollar donations. 
When reporter Michelle Lee started writing about the money that was being spent on the 2020 presidential race, she began by checking in with the big donors, the millionaires and billionaires who shell out thousands to politicians, usually through super PACs. Super PACs, who are basically the shadow campaign. Mm -hmm. Without limits on the amount of money any one person can give. Super PACs have basically dominated the political fundraising game for almost a decade now ever since the Supreme Court handed down two very controversial rulings. In 2010, there was a pair of court cases that really unleashed this world of super PACs that we have now, the world of big money and wealthy donors and millionaires and billionaires. Well, this case, Citizens United, was one that said corporations and unions have a right to spend as much money as they want to. The court ruled Thursday that corporations may spend freely to support or oppose candidates for president and Congress, with the rise of super PACs in 2016 is really when you saw how influential they can be and how much the backlash had grown since they were created. Hmm. And we saw that in the form of the many super PACs that were supporting Hillary Clinton and then other super PACs that were out to support Republican candidates like Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Carly Fiorina. It was like a must-have accessory almost. But then all of those candidates that you mentioned— they failed. Exactly. You saw the frustration around this wealthy donor class really channeling toward Bernie Sanders, who raised tons of money and small dollar donations. And then you saw kind of the drain the swamp frustration going toward Donald Trump, who raised massive amounts of small dollar donations, especially for a presidential candidate. And this really showed how much money was out there and how much energy was out there to support candidates from this like kind of people-powered populist movement. And both of those candidates really rode that wave. Michelle started to realize that that wave of small-dollar donations was going to end up shaping the 2020 Democratic primary field in ways that were very unexpected. It's very different compared to four years ago when you were looking out for wealthy donors and who's giving to which super PAC and trying to see, you know, suss out what the big super PAC race is going to be. It's been super silent on that front in terms of what the big donors are doing. The story is where are these smaller amounts of donations coming from and who are these donors actually coalescing around? And the power of these low dollar donations of under 200 at a time is really going to uh, show who has it, what it takes to rise to the top of the pool. I think of it almost like a Kickstarter primaries season where a lot of people are trying to raise money for the cause of trying to stand out among this really crowded campaign. So when we're talking about small dollar donations, we're talking about like pretty small. You said under $200. Under $200 at a time. So it could be as small as $5. Some people just chip in whatever they can. Other people may be giving $100, $150. But it's under $200. That's kind of the threshold when it comes to the definition of this. So the idea at this point is not just that like small dollar donations will help finance a candidate's campaign, but that it says something about that candidate, that they might be the winning candidate because they're able to get so many of these smaller donations. Right. It's become a metric and a very important metric. And we now see that because it's one of two ways you could actually make it onto the debate stage for the first Democratic National Committee debates in June. It really is a sign of viability. 
If you think about the very wide open field that we have right now on the left for the 2020 primaries, it's people who largely agree on the fundamentals of policy, like they want to tax the rich and they want to expand healthcare coverage, like the basics of what people care about on the left, the candidates have it. So then how do you determine who rises to the top? Well, especially as you say that President Trump used this so effectively in 2016 that it feels like people are looking for the Democratic Trump, the anti-Trump, whatever, but, but that they're looking for someone who can use the same tactics that he used just as effectively. Right. They really want to see someone go up against Trump who has gotten the broad-based support from Democrats. They don't want someone who's an anointed frontrunner. They don't want someone who's the presumptive nominee. They want to really fight this out in terms of getting the support that you need from a large number of people. You mentioned that these small-dollar donations will be taken into consideration for the debate stages. How are they being used as a metric for determining who gets to appear at the debates and how they appear? Right. So there are two ways that you can make it to the debate stage in the early debates. And one is through polling and one is through fundraising. And the fundraising metric is raising money from more than 65,000 donors in at least 20 states. So it's really going to come down to the candidate who can either organically attract that amount of money and donors or people who are going to be able to target the right people to raise that money. So far, who among the Democrats has been most successful in getting these small-dollar donations? The people who have been most successful so far are people who have had established Senate campaigns, mainly Senator Bernie Sanders, who already has a huge apparatus from the 2016 presidential election, Senator Kamala Harris, who has been a very successful national fundraiser. She raised a lot of money for midterm candidates in 2018, which actually helped her build her own list for her own fundraising. Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, if he gets in, and Joe Biden, who has a longtime network of donors and former Obama supporters who are eager for him to get into the race. So people with these existing fundraising networks already have the leg up that it will take for them to succeed. And what's not clear is how easily and quickly the lesser-known candidates are going to be able to build up steam, build up the technology and the staff that it takes to create this sort of a fundraising apparatus, and how well they're going to be able to capitalize on viral moments when they might all of a sudden become well-known and then be able to fundraise off of it through tweets and Facebook ads and emails. You said that a lot of the reason why these small-dollar donations are being used as a metric now is because of the frustration with corporate PAC money and the way that that has dominated politics in the last decade. How many Democratic candidates have actually disavowed corporate PAC money? I believe it's every single candidate who's declared so far their presidential campaign has taken some sort of a symbolic pledge to disavow PAC money or corporate PAC money. We need to get money out of politics. It's why I'm banning corporate PAC money. I'm not taking a dime of PAC money in this campaign. I'm not going to accept corporate PAC checks. I don't think we should have individual super PACs, and I don't want one. 
It's really important to note that this is symbolic. There's not a whole lot of corporate PAC money that actually comes into the political system, but it's really come to stand for a certain message that these candidates want a people-powered campaign. They want a democratic process. They don't want to be beholden to any corporations or wealthy people or lobbyists. And this has really become a symbolic pledge. What do you mean that there's not actually that much corporate PAC money that enters the political system. If you actually look at the breakdown of donations that come from corporations, it's not as significant as people might think. It actually makes up for a small percentage of all the money that's financing our political system. But it's really come to symbolize something much bigger than that. An important thing to keep in mind is that corporate PACs are different from super PACs. Super PACs are outside groups that work independently from the campaigns, technically. They're not supposed to coordinate with the campaigns. And there's really nothing a candidate can do to stop a super PAC from being created and working to help their chances of getting elected. I mean, they can say, I don't want any super PACs helping me, but that's about as far as they can go. Corporate PACs and millionaires and billionaires are still going to be spending their money on our political system. And it's still going to end up helping a lot of them, whether it's through money coming through the DNC. Their money is going to be there. It's just that these candidates right now are disavowing direct donations from those corporate PACs and those wealthy donors into their campaign. And a lot of these wealthy donors are kind of, they kind of get it. When I talk to them, they're like, well, we know that we have to go through this process. And we are eager to see it play out because we will see which candidates get the most support and we'll, we're happy to back them. And they're just like waiting to open up their wallets to spend the millions of dollars that they want to and help fundraise for these people. But right now is just not their time. If it turns out to be the case that there is still going to be a lot of large dollar donations that end up affecting the course of the campaign, that these wealthy donors will at some point start opening their wallets and spending all this money, then is this emphasis on small dollar donations really a more egalitarian way of doing politics? Or is it just kind of paying lip service to it? And then ultimately, all these huge donations will start flooding in and will change the game. And these small dollar donations won't actually matter in the long run. That's exactly what I will be looking out for. And I'm curious to know that, too. For the time being, it's clear that this is a real metric. Bernie Sanders' campaign announced, and they said that within three and a half hours of announcing, they raised a million dollars. That created a huge splash. I mean, this is a lot of money, and this is a type of people-powered, real, like, grassroots momentum and support that a candidate needs to show. They're going to get the support from the base that they're going to need. Eventually, the big dollars most likely will flow. It may not be directly to help the campaigns themselves. It may be in the form of other super PACs. It may be in the form of political nonprofits, so-called dark money groups. So they may be out there, but it is clear that right now this is a true metric of who has what it takes to become the Democratic nominee. Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. On Wednesday morning, just 24 hours after Bernie Sanders jumped into the presidential race, his campaign announced that they'd raised $6 million from more than 225,000 contributors. The average donation was $27.
On the Saturday before last year's midterm election, a guy named Adam Gianelli was in Utah's 4th District. He was going door-to-door canvassing for Ben McAdams, a Democrat running for Congress. Canvassing is scary for a lot of people who are doing it for the first time. But it was particularly scary for Adam. I arrived at these series of apartment complexes in a suburban neighborhood along Interstate uh, 15 in South Salt Lake, Utah. And I didn't just, you know, rush and and knock on the door right away. I did. I sort of pace outside for a while. And then, and I think part of it was just the awkwardness of knocking on strangers' doors. But also for me, I knew that I stuttered. But eventually I did knock on the door and a man answered. I, I told them, you know, something like, Hello, my name is Adam Janelli. I'm knocking on doors in support of Ben McAdams for for Congress. I did stutter on my name as I suspected. It's more just the history that comes along with my name that it makes it a difficult sound for me. And that stems back to like being in school. And having to introduce myself on the first day was always a very difficult situation for me. And I remember once getting stuck on my name and the the teacher said something like, "Uh, have you forgotten your name? You know, and, and, and everyone laughed. And so I think certain words that you stutter on repeatedly take on a certain history. You're, you're sort of aware of that history, and so, and so it sort of bubbles up when you say those words, and they make them more difficult to continue to say. When I first started calling voters, they were generally impatient. You know, some people, I remember saying, I can't hear you. Some people who were the most polite would stay on and sort of assure me that they were going to vote. A lot of people just hung up. And I remember someone shouted, you can't just call people. Part of that was because of my stutter. I also think sometimes it was just reaction to being you know, randomly called by a stranger. I'm now more comfortable speaking with strangers or speaking on the phone than I was previously, it doesn't mean that I don't stutter. I imagine at this point, you know, I'm an adult, I'll stutter to some extent for the rest of my life. So it wasn't if the goal had been to do this and then I wouldn't stutter ever again, then it wasn't a success. But I I knew going in that was not what the outcome I expected. It was more to put myself in situations that would be where I would be more likely to stutter to make so I myself would be more comfortable with my own voice.
Adam Gianelli's essay, The Campaign Volunteer Who Stuttered, was published in the Washington Post magazine. Ben McAdams won that election, defeating incumbent Mia Love by less than one percentage point. That's it for today's show. Join the conversation about the show using the hashtag PostReports, or take a few minutes to share your thoughts at postreports.com survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 